as we record, it is Tuesday, November 3rd. We're here. Uh, Amanda Mine is here. Hello, Hello. Amanda. Allison Williams. Hello, Todd. As well. And we'll uh, welcome our guest in just a few minutes. But uh, I just said it's Tuesday, November 3rd as we're recording this. It's in the this year of our Lord, 2020. 2020. Uh, it's just another Tuesday. We are about, uh, well, we're a kind of early afternoon here, West Coast time. Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, for those who don't remember, <laughs> is, the day, <laughs> is the day of the American election. Is it? It is. And so as listeners are listening to this, it's already happened. Isn't that astounding? We're talking to the future. Uh, I'd like so to be in the future right now. We're like a little time capsule. People are listening to this going, what did it feel like before? Oh my goodness. I don't know yeah, if I like that the, responsibility. I don't know. Before what? We don't. Are you guys a little angsty? I think we're all kind of in the same camp here, aren't we? Aren't we pulling for the same I I, I think so. I think that's yeah. a so safe statement. I think, that's a safe say that. I think the three here, of yeah. us sitting around this table are all really hoping that Joe Biden wins. Yes. And so the listeners are now either feeling like, oh, they didn't need to be so nervous, or oh, I feel so sorry for them. One of those two things, um, because they know, and we don't sitting mm -hmm. here. But uh, are you feeling a bit angsty? You said you are? Oh, I've been jumpy for a few days. Yeah. yeah. Are we, are we yeah. going to know tonight? I'm not certain about that. And and I feel like I, I'm trying to mentally prepare myself that, that there's a very distinct possibility that we won't know tonight. And I'm hoping that that's, that's okay with me. I'm hoping that's okay with everybody else. I'm immensely hopeful that the early states come in. Me too. In a way that allows us to strong. Say, clearly, this is what's happening. Me too. I, yeah. I'm not convinced that's what's going to happen. Uh, I have to tell myself that. Mm -hmm. It you just how much more can we take of another day of insane amounts of news? And I've been wondering if when this is done, like assuming that again, there are lots of people who want Trump to win. So I'm not but for me it is like, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, I pray, whatever, that Joe Biden wins. If that happens, I've already thought I might just not watch the news for a little bit. Take a break. Take a break. Maybe, you know, cancel some of the subscriptions I have, whatever, because it's just constant right now. Um, yeah, I have to keep reminding myself that this this intensity of news cycle, this intensity of news in general, like it's, it's not normal. Well, hopefully it's not normal. Hopefully we haven't reached some new... And we're right in the middle of a pandemic. It's exhausting. Well. So, but, I mean, every five minutes is breaking news. Every five it's minutes. It's too much. So what... The, the episode uh, that we're here introducing today, um, we're going to talk about it's, it's concepts around polarization and what it means to listen to the other, what it means to listen charitably. We're doing that within the realm of literary criticism is where we're starting, like how we can be more than just a critic. But I thought that a good place to start, and, and I'll just throw this little article out and we'll just talk about it for a minute, is the concept of, of being able to listen to someone with whom you disagree quite strongly or even first being able to recognize their humanity. And in light of this election, is there a way forward in this, whoever wins, or are the camps just going to become more and more entrenched? So this article, it's in the New Yorker magazine, or it's in their online stuff, um, published on November 2nd, so yesterday, and the staff reporter is named uh, Charles Bethia. And the article is he, about a week ago, he was down in Atlanta and he was covering a Joe Biden, actual Joe Biden rally, like one of those car rallies, right, where they're honking their horns. And But of course, as happens in those kinds of things, camps kind of came. So there were Biden supporters and then there yeah, were Trump as well as supporters. Trump ones. And he talks about one African-American man named Ed who wearing a mask, like a, a you know, anti-COVID mask uh, thing, uh, was quite happy to be there and support Biden and was pretty vocal about he considered Trump to be racist and stuff. And so this reporter, Charles Bethia, was covering this. He kind of noticed this man, so started kind of following him a little bit. And this man named Ed, this African-American man, made his way across the street. The street seemed to be a bit of a divide between Trump supporters and Biden supporters. And he made his way across the street towards the hundred or so Trump supporters who were quite loud and they had Hunter Biden signs and laptop things and whatever. And Ed made his way across the street and they started hollering and he put his hands in the air and he's like, let's go. And he's, the more they got worked up, the more he seemed to. And so this reporter is walking with him or alongside him to cover this. And there's a man who thinks that uh, they are together. 
and uh, and he just starts hollering at him. Excuse my language here. But he says to the reporter, you think you're cool with your stupid fucking friend? And then he just keeps going like this, right? And the reporter says to the man who's yelling and swearing at him, he says, I'm a reporter and I have an audio recorder here. You might just want to know that because I could, I could print what you're saying and I might well do that. And then he replied with, you guys like fucking pushing shit, but then when it comes down to it, you want to antagonize. You're a fucking little... And then he uses a, a homophobic slur. And it keeps going like this. He says, you're a having a little wise ass and he said i'll punch you in your fucking face and it just keeps going and going and going like this right and um and there and the reporter's like i you know asked for his name he gives i guess a fake name and stuff and this is kind of continuing then the reporter says a woman approaches from down the line or whatever she's walking towards them and he recognizes her and she's a republican she's actually a tea party activist but interestingly enough she's also working on solar energy things so he the reporter had known her from a previous story and it kind of befriended her and they'd become allies and so her, her name's debbie and he says hey debbie and she notices and and she's like what's going on and he basically says oh this guy's been yelling at me and says some of the things he's been saying and she's like who and he's like this guy right here and and she turns white just looks freaked out and says like that's my boyfriend that's my boyfriend jason and then she says jason what have you been saying to this guy and then you know it kind of he mumbles Ugh. through something then not long after that so that scene ends he says goodbye to debbie um and then that man finds the reporter and he says, um, oh, oh, hey. And he's kind of laughing and chuckling and stuff. And he's like, oh, my mask was really bothering me. And the coat I was wearing, or coat I'm wearing, oh, it's yeah, making me so hot. hot. Right? And he's like, and the guy's like, do you know the things you said to me? And he's like, oh, I don't think I said those things. And I never meant it that I would punch you and all this kind of stuff. And so anyway, what do you think about that kind of thing? Why is this kind of thing happening? How do we so quickly make the other side into not even a person? My first thought is that I've never been so uncomfortably sweaty that I felt the need to like scream profanities at someone. Like there's no freedom in that. I just have to say that. Um, there's something that strikes me about these moments in these like mobs and these herds of people that almost feels a little bit like internet trolls because they're anonymous in this crowd, right? That's a good, yeah. And so I see these two things happening, like this crowd of people, but there's like this person sitting at a keyboard in the dark almost, right, on the internet. And it's the same kind of thing, right? These horrible things are said to people. Um, and then this woman comes along and points it out. and like, no, no, here you are. Well, I and know you. names him and identifies yeah. him. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, no, what have I done? And there's this excuse of... Mm -hmm. But I didn't do anything. I couldn't have said that to you. Is Jason, yeah. so it's Jason, the guy who's yelling. Is he it like, would seem to be, yes. Is he the worst person in the world? No. Like, I bet you. I'll bet you he's not. Maybe he's a nice guy, but yeah. like something's happening there, that there you're caught up in the be, way you see yeah. the other side. And that's where the internet piece comes in, because like I'm sure that the people on the other side of a keyboard saying, throwing a vitriol in their lives many times are not terrible people. And yet this anonymous thing allows you to say... Yeah, where like the, the excuse and the justification of being able to say whatever you want to say mm -hmm. or do whatever you want to do and that you can do it without ramifications or repercussions is feels a little new yeah. in some mm -hmm. ways. Um, it's, it's concerning, though, that you go, how, whoa, like 10 minutes ago or whatever time it was, you were saying this sort of stuff to me and now you're trying to pretend like like you feel like a different person at this moment and how did that shift happen so quickly it's it feels a little trumpish as well this idea of like oh no i didn't say that well no i have it yeah. recorded well, and unfortunately <laughs> i think if, if your you, president yeah. is saying these things frequently somehow right. i think you feel that you have agency to deny yeah. that you said something well there there has been unfortunately in in my opinion um an example of saying things and and believing that you have no responsibility for the words that you're saying that that's in my opinion been exemplified by mm -hmm. trump that you can mm -hmm. say and you can do things and then if anybody calls you on it you you deny it or you don't remember it or like you you then try to contextualize it but there's there's something that um we we refer 
in the episode to, um, or we're going to, to a book called Tyranny of Merit. And it talks about Trump supporters, and, um, people who maybe don't have as much education as some others and stuff. So, yeah. and, uh, but that they feel recognized by Trump. You know, they might even see through some of the stuff, but they feel like they're recognized, like they're, yeah. whereas some elites or whatever look down well, on them. And so there's this automatic, so the article, toward the end of the article, the, uh, a Trump van, a van full of Trump supporters with all the flags and stuff shows up, and the Biden people are kind of watching, and the doors open, and people are getting out of the van, and some Trump supporter falls out of the van, and apparently all the Biden people start laughing and heckling a little bit, and you're just well, like, that's like, not like, helpful. What's that's going not on. Like, no. how do we see the humanity in that other person? What what is behind grievance? What's behind some of the stuff at Trump rallies beyond just the entertainment, right? That people are feeling connected, that it's certainly not this reporter's role to kind of, you know, console somebody like Jason who's yelling this at him. But is there a way to see this humanity again? And we're going to have to have that regardless of who wins, or should we say, of who won. Uh, because if we get more entrenched in these sides, that's the real, real problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm yeah. sure there's examples out there about people reaching across. You were talking about Pete Buttigieg. Well, I mean, I, I saw this clip of him at a Florida um, event that he was holding for, for Biden. And uh, a Trump supporter comes out and is kind of heckling him. And, and Buttigieg is going, it's okay, it's okay. Like, don't worry. Like, we're, we're fine. Like, to the security and stuff. And he goes, you know, um, you know, will you let me finish my remarks? And then he goes a little back and forth with this guy. And... He says to the guy, do you denounce white supremacy? And he goes, yeah. And he's like, awesome. We've got a great place to start from then. And, and you go, he, he doesn't hate this person. Um, and he's like, let's, let's find the place in which there's probably a lot of things we disagree on, but the, like, let's find things we agree on and let's start from there. And I feel like that, that's a good place to start. Yeah, I, I think that's it. Where is our starting point? How do we yeah. start a conversation? I, am, I think that's why I'm telling myself, like obviously as someone who would rather that Biden won. And both sides, many people on both sides feel like it's kind of the end of the world if the mm-hmm. wrong side wins, mm-hmm. right? I think regardless of what happens, the rebuilding will come only if more and more of us can see the humanity in the people on the other side. So let's say Biden does win or has won. How will those people who are more given to the way that we see things uh, be able to not you know, think, oh, it's great we beat these people, but actually recognize the humanity in that other person. So anyway, we have to go watch the returns and yeah. the results. And we have this fantastic interview coming up with um, Lisa Ruddock, who speaks about some of these things, seeing the humanity and the heart, first of all, our own humanity, but also the humanity of the other. So thank you guys both. Mm-hmm. Fantastic mm-hmm. talk. Uh, we're Looking all forward a little to bit the nervous. other side of this. I don't know. Who and knows? everybody listening knows what yeah. happened. Bless you all. <laughs> In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the Rector's Cupboard. Order. So we are uh, welcoming you to another episode of Rector's Cupboard here. Allison is on the mic. Hello, Allison. Hello, Todd. And our producer this afternoon is Amanda, but you don't have a mic, but you can kind of say hi to us. You've said hi to us. (laughs) She's waving. uh, We have a topic today that I think is fantastic and that came about over the last number of weeks uh, in our conversation. Um, and Allison, uh, basically you you kind of came up with this potential of talking about what we are going to talk about today. Tell us how. Um, I, I was in a course for school and the, the prof was talking about how um, he he has discovered in his years of teaching graduate students that often, particularly uh, it's a theological school, um, oftentimes he's like, we, we're really good at creating students who know how to be critical. They know what, what they don't like, and we find that they struggle to articulate what they do like. And 
so he he was encouraging us that as as we are reading through things to not just look for the criticisms we can make, how to deconstruct it, but to actually look at how to be constructive in it. And he spoke of this thing uh, that he called charitable reading. And it piqued my interest because I was like, that sounds really interesting and very relevant mm. to stuff. Because I, I feel like there's so much polarization in in many, many spheres. Um, and so it, it was really interesting. And so I said, I think that we should do this. And then we contacted the prof and he's like, you should talk to this person. And, and that's so, how we got our guest today, who I will introduce in, in just a moment. But it, it piqued my interest because when you uh, spoke to me about it, uh, you got talking about how um, Richard Topping had said, like, we, we all seem to automatically learn how to be critics. Mm-hmm. And, and I right away went to how we can go from the concept of reading to just how we listen to one another in general in society. And there's a thousand reasons why the timing of this could be good, but clearly in many spheres of our lives, we, we have not learned how to listen well to somebody who doesn't share our viewpoint or something. So, so we're going to start off talking about literary criticism, which is um, where this was coming from, and then hopefully move to this larger conversation. So we're really pleased today to welcome Mm -hmm. our guest. Our guest is Lisa Ruddick, who is an associate or who was associate is associate Professor uh, Emerita in the Department of English at the University of Chicago. She is the author of Reading Gertrude Stein, Body Text Gnosis, and more recently, a series of articles describing the ways in which doctoral training in the academic humanities can cut people off from their moral intelligence and from their full range of feeling. Uh, Lisa is now completing a book on this subject, an excerpt of which appeared a number of years ago as a widely read article called When Nothing is Cool. And that's how we came across um, this topic and yes. and, and found uh, Lisa Ruddick through Richard Topping. And so we're really, really grateful. Thank you so much thank for joining you, us. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having you're, me. You're in Delaware, is that correct? Am I? Yes. Yeah. 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 My husband and I have retired to Delaware. Fantastic. So, and, mm-hmm. and you were, but you were at the University of Chicago for a number of years. For many, many years. Yeah. My whole okay. career. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Um, so we, uh, let's just dive right in and start off because I think it's, it's important for us um, and for those who are listening to kind of have a general concept uh, of literary criticism. So if you could tell us what literary criticism is, assuming that you know people might not know, what does the term refer to, and how is it the same, or how is it different from what we might encounter as like a book review or something, yeah, literary yeah. criticism? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, literary criticism as practiced by people in universities is the study and really the curation of our literary heritage and our literary present. So we decide what novels and poems and plays from the past and the present to teach. And we also teach analytical skills. So if we're, if if a colleague who works in the Renaissance is teaching Shakespeare, that colleague might uh, uh, help students to understand the whole political context Mm -hmm. of the late 16th and early 17th centuries or the ideas of kingship. Uh, The person might be writing scholarly articles on that topic, or they might ask about anger in Shakespeare's King Lear and how was anger conceived of in the early 17th century? And is that similar to or different from how we conceive of it now? So a lot of it is about the historical context. Mm -hmm. And then some of it uh, is formal analysis. So what it, what is the form of poetry? What is it set? What's the, what are the rhythms of the line? How is, uh, how is uh, rhyme used when it's used in Shakespeare's mm-hmm. works? And what are the meanings, for example, in terms of a person's place in the social hierarchy of his or her ability to write a sonnet, which is a very elaborate verse, short verse form, rather elaborate that Shakespeare was a master of. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can use literary criticism to ask deeper questions about human nature. Hmm. How do human beings experience empathy? Hmm. Does literature help us to grow in empathy? That kind of kind of question. So we came across um, your well, you through this article that Richard Topping recommended uh, uh, that you wrote called "When Nothing Is Cool." Can you give us kind mm-hmm. of the general argument of that yeah, article? Yeah, that article, um, uh, I published it in 2015, and it was the result of many, many years of thinking 
critically about the blind spots and the forms of psychological repression that were, were and are part of the discourse in my field. Part of that, in order to be a scholar of English, you have to sign on for certain beliefs. Oh, okay. And I didn't believe in those beliefs. <laughs> so I had been uh, building, uh, every once in a while, I would write a little article, getting a little bit of my thinking <laughs> out there. But I would tell my friends, I felt like a medieval monk who really? is placing on the walls of his cells little bits of information that constitute an incredible case against the emperor. <laughs> but it's, it's building it up and building it up, and then he may go to his grave, and people will well, then look <laughs> in his, on the walls of his cell and say, that's an amazing case against the emperor. Um, and uh, so this article condensed a lot of that thinking. Uh, and uh, it went viral. It appealed to a lot of people, both in my own field, which is English and American, British and American literature, but also scholars and students in the field of anthropology and uh, uh, geography, a wide range of fields, and also to some writers, like people like poets and also artists. Um, and what everybody was reacting to, uh, who, who res with whom my, everybody for whom my article resonated, was somebody who felt that in their field of endeavor, there was a dry, callous style that counted as sophistication. Mm. So if you wanted to write from your heart or speak from your heart or even say you believed in something that is the human heart, you'd be called naive and sentimental and even conservative. Mm. That was the nature of the article. That's um, that's really well put. We actually had in there that we pulled that quote out. Right? Yeah, where you talk about um, that ruthlessness can be made to look like sophistication. Yes. Um, yeah. And Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, I was say, could you could you maybe give us a little bit more kind of context for that and elaborate yeah. a bit on that? Yes, uh, that's. I'm glad you asked that question. My work now, uh, over time, as I was doing this kind of work, other people who were having the same issues about the intellectual establishment in my field were starting to write similar work, and so we now form part of a school that's called post-criticism with a lot of variety in it. Um, and what I'm contributing to that school is, uh, among other things, is, a, I hope, an understanding of how the kind of callousness that I'm talking about can degenerate into a sadism against life and tenderness hmm. that has a lot to do with the thinking of fraternities and other groups of ruthless young men who want to say, I'm not sentimental. I have no compunctions about doing the hard thing. Um, uh, you, do you, does that make sense? To yeah, the it does. Yeah. Um, do, do you think this, like, as you say that, when you actually use the term as well, you said in a, in a previous response, you said, or even conservative, which, yes. which is interesting, right? That, yeah. and we probably have more listeners who are a little more sympathetic to views on the left. I'm not sure, actually. We have, it's all over the map. But mm -hmm. sometimes we can be more aware of, of critiques of, of the right or conservatism in general. Is some of what you're describing, am I right to think that you were feeling some of this within the academy that is not necessarily thought of as right of center in terms of, you know, on the scale of where things are at in the world? Is this a particular issue... Uh, that finds expression on the left, this kind of callousness? Oh, definitely. Okay. Uh, totally, yes. And it, I am, hmm. uh, I, I certainly don't want to offend any of your listeners who are planning to vote for the Republican candidate for president. And I right. really mean that. Hmm. My own experience of this candidate is that he's, what he's projecting for, uh, uh, for his audience is some of the same kind of sadism and callousness mm. and triumph over what's vulnerable. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's ironic that what counts as radical thought in my discipline sometimes is a mirror image of that. That's uh, it's, it, yeah, it's really sad. So I have to fight the temptation to mention the current administration over and over again in my book manuscript um, 
I just, I don't, I, so I, I, I think I'm just going to end up putting it in footnotes, but it's a very similar. That's really interesting. So like, because people stop listening as soon as something or someone or some viewpoint is mentioned. And so even to be able to you know, think, oh, if I mention this person or this political figure, then that puts people into camps kind of potentially. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And really all of my friends are liberals. One friend is a Republican, but everybody mm -hmm. else is liberals. But then I also, my world of friends is the kind of hothouse of <sighs> the of, of, of the academic humanities mm. uh, of English departments in universities and colleges. And we're way, way to the left of center. Wow. Sorry, Alison, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was going to say, um, if uh, we could go back a little bit to to your, your article, uh, When Nothing is Cool, you talk about how um, this this type of criticism, this type of, type of critique, uh, that there can be an impression of deadness or meanness in it. Like, yes, what do you yes. mean by that? Okay, yes. Uh, and that takes me back to your previous question. So I'll give an example. There's a very important current theorist named Heather Love, whose work registers as post-humanist. That's just the name for mm -hmm. the class of theory that she's doing. But you'll be able to follow what her argument is if I read to you a little bit of her work. What she does is uses, among other things, the, theory, the theories of a particular sociologist to argue that the sacred human qualities of interiority and depth do not exist. So I'm going to read you this quote, and then, Allison, as I proceed, I'm going to show how this kind of coldness toward mm. the sensitive, vulnerable, sacred inner world of the individual. Um, so as I proceed, I'm going to uh, suggest how this kind of callousness toward the tender inner world of the individual can teeter over into a sadism against the individual, a kind of violent mm. wish to unmask and dismember and desecrate. So I'm gonna read just a little bit of a famous article by Love, an intellect, I mean, a, an influential article called Close But Not Deep. Irving Goffman, this is the sociologist that she's, whose theory she's relying on, does not see literature as a storehouse of human potential experience or feeling. And isn't it sad that mm. somebody who's an English professor <laughs> is honoring this Misses theory? Yeah. But I'm serious. This that, is very normal yeah. thinking for my field. Although there are voices like mine. There's a growing that. chorus of voices uh, saying something's really wrong yeah. here. But this is the cool thought. Meaning if you quote Heather Love on Urban Goffman, you're work has authority and is uh, likelier to get published in a major journal in our field than if you say human literature, uh, literature is a storehouse of human potential experience or feeling. So she goes on, Goffman engages in analytical procedures coming from the field of what's called microsociology that are corrosive of humanist values. And humanist values means the old fashioned view that literature is a storehouse mm. of human mm. feeling. He prefers a world in which sacred human qualities of warmth, intention, depth, and authenticity don't hold water. This article has, is much cited, greatly regarded. Mm. And by the way, it's, a, I think, a bit of a misstatement about what Goffman's fundamental mm. <laughs> are, but it's tilted toward what English professors seem to like to read. And the opposite of this is a line from the poet Rainer Maria Rilke, mm. uh, a, 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 a statement that he made, love consists in this, that two solitudes protect and touch and greet each other. Oh. So there's a kind of uh, protecting and touching and greeting that happens when some poetry reaches us, but the fashionable thing in English is to say that that goes back to a bourgeois ideology wow. of interiority. So it's all loaded with capitalist thought that we were made uh. during the rise of capitalism in the 17th and 18th centuries to think of ourselves as having 
a solitary self that can put itself on the market and doesn't owe anything to other people and doesn't have communion with anything outside the self. So, so there, that, there is the, that's so the callous thinking. Yeah. And in a minute, I'll tell you how that then can then turn into, um, into vicious thinking. Like but, a mean, meanness. Yeah, meanness. Yeah. But Allison, you, where you had a look on your yeah. face. <laughs> <laughs> that I did. Um, I just, I'm, I'm finding this kind of almost a little bit shocking because I, I just go, it feels very removed from, from human experience. I mean, I'm not a sociologist. I'm, I'm not an English expert by any means, but I go, I have encountered beautiful stories, beautiful music, beautiful poetry that, that has moved me and I have felt and I like in my body. And so it's really hard for, for me to try to understand how someone can go, well, that just doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say that so many people feel as you do. And I do mm. about this, that the dominant thinking is really starting to crack oh, in the field. So good. again, the whole field is acknowledging its excesses. Mm. now so it's a pretty good time oh, that's, in the that's field encouraging for, actually that's really hopeful that yes it's really good and that i look i also there are so many scholars whose work is fantastic that doesn't partake and does not partake of these um wild mm -hmm. ideas that i just want to say uh i admire English. I admire mm. my field. Uh, I'm a little sad to have retired. Uh, and I think that also hmm. uh, the whole uh, liberal education is upholding a kind, not just critical thinking, but democratic thinking mm. that's mm. really important for our culture right now. So I'm talking about a particular kind of thinking that's been automatic for, mm. for, our, for the discipline of literary studies for a long time, but it's totally not that everybody who joins the discipline thinks like this. Right. And yeah. if you're if you're uh, brave enough and also learned enough, you can write work that goes against the grain. That's good. I, I think, yeah, because I think what compels someone to that kind of study, to that kind of engagement, like you talk about the solitudes greeting each other. I mean, mm -hmm. I kind of say, why else would we read? Why else yeah. would we? Yeah. Why else would we uh, take up a where poem? Does poetry except, come from? Except then? to yeah. feel something and to greet some yeah. other solitude, yeah. right? That, yeah. But then, right. when you use the word meanness, it, it maybe provides us a bridge to to expand the conversation to implications um, within, but also outside of literary criticism. Because one of the things that was interesting to me, Allison, when you talked to me about this topic, and then when I came across this article, was I'm reading it going, there are so many implications for society as a whole, not, not yeah. only within the academy, mm -hmm. that we've become yeah. a lot more mean, and we have, be yeah. we have now... Yeah. At times, we think that not listening to the other um, is a virtue. That that um, this kind of distance or disconnection, which is some of what you're talking about. So I'm interested in how this is just now. You're not always necessarily as like an English professor, but just your own observation of culture. How do you see some of what you're writing about within the academy reflected, mirrored? It might be different, but in in society as a whole, do you see that people are you know, not engaging in these helpful ways outside of the English department. Right. Also. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what I think, but okay. again, not as an expert, <laughs> right. but for a long time, I felt like we're a decadent culture that mm. we're addictive. We uh, we're primates. We human beings are primates that we're, we're greedy and possessive. And there's such an abundance of stuff that we can have now and stimuli that can come our way. This is, by no means original to me, but I'm with mm. those who think that the culture fell into an addiction to stimuli mm. at some point uh, over the last latter half of the 20th century. Uh, not that it was such a great time in 1950, mm. but, uh, but at least it was a, a quieter time in terms of the amount of uh, boring reflective space that a person had in their day. Do you think that 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 um, almost like impatience then 
than pleasing? Because I, I do think that you are you are very spot on with your observation that generally as a society, we, we're overstimulated. So if something takes more than X amount mm-hmm. of time to do, it's difficult for those who wish to try to pursue it. And it's impossible for those who don't have either the stamina or the attention to care to try to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering whether, do you feel that in some ways landing merely into, into just criticalness of, of things and just this deconstruction of things that mm-hmm. it's because people are unwilling or unable or untrained in how to be reflective in order to try to construct something as well. I actually think people are not well-trained in being reflective. I think that that's a bit of a transgressive thought, but I also think we're supposed Mm. to produce so fast and Mm. scholars are supposed to produce so fast that you have to come up with a good formula. So if you can (laughs) decapitate human interiority, you just do that thing that somebody showed you was a stylish thing to do and get your article published. That's easier than, uh, than writing an article that builds on your own encounter with the inwardness of the poem Mm. because it takes time and space and solitude. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think, I, but I, I don't really have a firm answer as to why the shallowness, the, 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 the love of shallowness in some sectors of my profession matches the shallow addictiveness of the mm-hmm. culture as a, as a whole. I just want to say something about the meanness because mm. I didn't quite get to that yeah. part. No, please. So, there is a way in which a person can then wield a theory to the effect that sacred human qualities of warmth, intention, depth, and authenticity don't hold water and add an element of showy aggression. So I will give one example, which is extreme, but it's an example where uh, that is from a, a, um, a, a well-reviewed book on Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, the physicist. Mm -hmm. And this person, uh, uh, I'm not going to use her name because I don't think individual professors, they're they're really not the object of what I'm I'm doing. But what she does is uses, again, the theories of Stephen Hawking, I mean, the theories of Irving Goffman to show that it is not, to argue that it is not, as she writes, possible to get rid of the different layers of a person so as to reach the true self. So the idea is we're an onion made up of layers, but there's no inside to the onion. It's just skin all the way down. And that's the same theory that the other person that I just mentioned is building on. So what she... Oh, sorry, keep going. What, what were you going to say, no, keep, Todd? Oh, no, I was going to read another quote. You keep going because I want to okay. finish this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so what she did is, on false pretenses, she got an interview with Stephen Hawking, or maybe a series of interviews, I forget, where she told him that she was going to be interviewing him on the Lucasian professor, the chair, the chair that he held as a professor of mathematics. And with some doubt about her intentions, he allowed her to do this. But in fact, she used it to observe him. And as you probably know, he had ALS, Lou Gehrig's mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. So he was attached to machines. He had a, a, something that had to repeatedly suck mucus out of his trachea. He could only communicate electronically. And she used her meeting with him as an occasion to ask for purposes of her reader without telling him what she was doing where are you then, Professor Hawking? And she talks about how the uh, machines that he's attached to are extensions of himself, how it's actually the speech simulator from which the words are emanating, so they're not emanating from his true self. And she notes a moment where he induces his speech synthesizer to say the word suction, whereupon, quote, the nurse immediately arrives, takes a Kleenex and wipes his mouth. So then the idea is the nurse also is an extension of himself. So there's no true self of Stephen Hawking. This was disgraceful. And yet 
the first version of this was published in Critical Inquiry, which is there's no journal more influential for the academic humanities than Critical Inquiry. Um, and this is, I'm quoting from the Critical Inquiry article. Uh, then she, the nurse, opens a small bag, takes a little pipe and puts it in Hawking's neck and activates a machine. His body shakes. So that kind of invasiveness of show, uh, unmasking that there's nobody inside and look, I can use this human being to show that there's no human being there. Wow. Gets, the fact that that get re gets rewarded is a really sad statement on what counts as thought in yeah. my field. I see where you are drawing those lines of saying like there's a meanness to uh -huh. it. That Yes, very <laughs> much. You have a quote in um, When Nothing is Cool that stood out to me speaking about this, this kind of thing um, in terms of literary criticism, people who are doing this in that way. You say they can hardly, after a few years, they can hardly locate a part of themselves that can be moved by a poem or a novel. It is as if their souls have gone into hiding to await some other tenure or deliverance. Uh, this quote made me recall a Simone Veal quote that has been in my mind for years where she says, attention taken to its highest degree is prayer. It presupposes faith and love. And so even as you're describing that scene um, with uh, Dr. Hawking or the you know, failure to see a person to just nothing but but layers mm -hmm. uh, and then back to how, what you guys were talking about previously there is this call to attentiveness and attention mm -hmm. can that can help us through this the ability to rather than to come something like with this with this um agenda already and here's what i'm going to do to this yes. other person or to actually yeah. pay attention to something is that one of the yes. first steps yes and as allison i think was suggesting in a previous comment comment we actually, I think, need disciplines of attention. We need to be trained in attention. I'm really struck by the uh, Catholic, it's a Jesuit practice called the examine. Yeah. I think that's what it's called, yeah. where mm -hmm. at the yeah. end of the day, you look deep inside, you invite Jesus into your company and look deep inside and uh, and scrutinize your, your day. Uh, that's just one one part of it. Uh, um, and uh, I think it's a, a command to yourself to slow down. But I'm in a meditation group. I'm a Buddhist. And we were talking at our last meeting. Uh, we were meeting over Zoom during the pandemic about how hard it is to will ourselves to meditate every day. Mm. But if you don't do it, you never get the invitation by your own soul to say hello to yourself. Mm. So. I think that there are practices, uh, close reading, which English professors do a lot of. It's, that means just talking about a poem very closely line by line and looking at how the meanings emerge from one word recalling another word in the poem and what's the poem most deeply doing. That's a kind of contemplative practice because you have to slow down and look at the inwardness or richness of the, of the poem but I also think that spiritual discipline hmm. is an incredible tonic for what ails us as a culture. And for, uh, for me, it's been a great tonic hmm. against the desensitization that comes with academic training. Yeah, I, I was reading an article uh, for, for this class that I'm, I'm taking where the... Um, the author is talking about how uh, she's talking about uh, biblical, uh, like scriptural reading and interpretation and how she's like, I found that with my students, one of the best things that I can do is make them read it in Hebrew or Greek because then it forces them to slow down and it forces oh, oh, them to wow. care about every word wow. because they, yeah. don't, like, mm. they, they don't speak it well. Cause she mm -hmm, also mm -hmm. identifies that she's like, we are a very impatient culture. Like it is bred into us in like the larger yes, society. Yep. So she's like, no yep. wonder we struggle with it when we examine uh, scripture, when we would examine any sort of literature, uh, because uh, we, we have mm -hmm. this like insatiable kind of appetite and like, it, yep. it, it, it's like this instant gratification mm -hmm, that we need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hmm. If, That's interesting to go through the. So if we go from, the, you know, 
to charitable reading is what a little bit what you're talking about, and then attentiveness. Um, then I can't help but as we're recording, I don't know what date is it today, October twenty first um, or something. And this 21st, is we're going to yes. put this out right after uh, the election in the United States. So right after November third, this will be oh. out. And of course, we can scarcely imagine what will happen between now and then, and then right in the immediate okay. aftermath yeah. or whatever. Well, but one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this topic was it's uh, you know we're talking about literary criticism and these things that can be fairly academic, but I have flashing through my mind pictures of people hollering at each other, uh, you know, mm -hmm. across this kind of, and, and yep. that we have, we so often fail to pay attention to the other person, particularly yeah, to the other right. person who's on the other side of yeah. whatever argument there is. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. One of my favorite books I've read this year is um, called The Tyranny of Merit. Um, by Michael Sandel. Uh, oh, yeah, I read a couple of reviews of that book. Yeah. It seems really great. And yeah. it kind of offers an explanation as to why so many people connected so much with um, Donald Trump and the populism and such. And toward the beginning yeah. of the book, he says the hard reality... So I'm thinking about this as I'm thinking of that screaming across this void and not paying attention to the other... He says, the hard reality is that Trump was elected in 2016, we don't know what happened in 2020 yet, by tapping a wellspring of anxieties, frustrations, and legitimate grievances to which the mainstream parties had no compelling answer. A similar predicament afflicts European democracies. Before they can hope to win back public support, these parties must rethink their mission and purpose. And now here's the attempt, attentive listening part. To do so, they should learn... Uh, from the populist protest that has displaced them, not by replicating its xenophobia and strident nationalism, but by taking seriously the legitimate grievances with which these ugly sentiments are entangled. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the failure to, to listen to, uh, uh, you yeah. know, in, I guess in, in religious talk, we would call it kind of the dehumanizing of the other. Yeah. That the right. other person isn't a person to be considered yeah. as a person. Like, what if they're into QAnon or something? Right, mm -hmm, which this could mm -hmm. be is, is a crazy conspiracy theory. Yeah, uh -huh. but does that mean I just, you know, don't listen to them as a person at all? Uh, right. And yeah. and so the call to kind of go a bit deeper that I think is is something that, you know, is as you speak about literary criticism, I build those bridges to think about those yeah, things. Yeah. I had a question yeah. along those lines, I think. I think it's related. It's in my head um, for you. How do you think hyper-moralism then? Because some of this that prevents us from listening is kind of a hyper-moralism. How mm -hmm. do you think hyper-moralism can be a kind of spiritual defect? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you and I were talking uh, a couple of weeks ago, I told you that I use this concept in my book in progress. Um, and it's a hyper-moralism is a, an error in moral reasoning where you extend moral blame to a place where it doesn't belong. So for example, if you understand that bourgeois individualism created a culture uh, where, uh, where the rich think that they're entitled to their wealth because it's their individual efforts that got them their wealth, mm -hmm. or if the uh, ideology of individualism creates an idea that of course the woman is at home working on the family and her work won't be recognized socially because the man is the one who's more individuated, who's more capable of living out this idea of selling yourself on the market. So there's lots of bad ideas that go along with individualism. Um, so then that can shift over into an idea that the individual and the inner world of the individual are actually just bourgeois inventions. Mm -hmm and are therefore bad. So that's the hypermoralism. Does that make sense it does. to you? I, you know, um, sorry, yeah. keep going. Uh, and so it's a, it can be a spiritual defect because if a person, well, let's just say, talk about it in the political sphere. There are many things that are misogynist in our world. And I'm, as a feminist, I'm very, very sensitive to them. But you could imagine somebody saying that something is misogynist when in fact it's not coming out of a hatred of women, mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. particular behavior. So there's this branding of things and we all then of course know who the misogynists are. They are not us in our liberal enclave. They're people in a more patriarchal, traditional yeah. 
subculture. Uh, so it's a, a moral defect, partly because you're using the most negative word you possibly can for something. And once the category is in place, you can't see that there's a complexity, maybe. Mm. Uh, uh, it would take visiting with one of these families to see if there's actual misogyny there. Mm-hmm. If you, if you does, follow me. It does seem to be like, like a term or, or an action that, that we can very quickly take. Um, and, and I think that, uh, like feeling like I'm making some connections with, with what Todd had just read in the tyranny of merit, that there are people who would be, I mean, what may be classified as, uh, on the right inside on on the political spectrum that would feel like they may be being called a misogynist by somebody. And they're like, I I don't actually hate women. And they don't necessarily, they're like, I I don't either know any different or that wasn't my intention. And so you, you, you can understand why there, there's a big reaction to stuff. And so when you have somebody coming along, validating them and saying, no, 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 you're not misogynist. Right. You can Uh understand that attraction. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I wonder if you might have some some thoughts or opinions about how how or what could possibly be helpful to try to move past some of this polarization that we get, because there's so many times where you almost wonder how you can talk to somebody on the other side. And um, I do wonder about that. Mm. And uh, we live in an area where there's it's about half and half uh, mm. uh, Trump and Biden signs. Really? And I say hi to the Trump people and they <laughs> say hi to me. and. But I don't actually know. Maybe they have incredible distrust of me, and I have some distrust of them. And I've been thinking about that because we're a tiny little neighborhood yeah. on a strip of, uh, beside the beach, between a beach and a nature preserve. We're a ro- one-road neighborhood, wow. and we all love this place. Uh, we love our ma- ma- mayor of this tiny little zone. And I was thinking, what could we do? So I had a fantasy of, especially if this were not the pandemic, just getting putting something up, uh, a, a notice, uh, if the mayor thought this was a good idea, to have just a meeting at the firehouse of people who want to hear what the thinking is on the other side of the political yeah. spectrum. But I actually thought that could go sour really quickly. Uh, and there have so been examples of that, where people yeah. have done just what you're saying, and some have worked out positively and others have just embedded people in stronger views. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I, that's a, I, I, we might just get over it for some reason or other, especially, I think it, it would take two things. One is just for uh, some solution to be found for the uh, decline of the middle class in this country, mm-hmm. uh, uh, just economic yeah. uh, and also for jobs to uh, appear yeah. for the working class. But also, um, no, that's all I was going to say. There was say. a, you know, that um, what I'm going to get her name wrong. Is it Jacinda uh, the Arden? Yeah, Jacinda Arden. Yeah, yeah, who just was reelected mm-hmm. as oh, um, New Zealand. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so it's the first time since the system has been in place for a number of years that there's been a majority government because she's so popular. So she won a majority oh, really? government, but she's announced mm-hmm. that she's probably going to form a coalition anyway. We're, oh, how great. You know, giving power oh. to the other side to share that is power. That's so good. This is oh, remarkable, that's excellent. Isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. and and I mean, I think that that where where I see and from some of your your work that you go maybe some of these steps is this learning of attention, this learning of um, not being so like disconnected from from our souls, from our bodies, from our feelings mm-hmm. and learning how to read charitably, learning how to, we could extrapolate that to listening charitably. Yes. Um, yeah. What do you think those sorts of, of practices though cost? Like in order to, to read something like an, uh, an academic article charitably, mm-hmm. what does that mm-hmm. cost you to do? Like, is it like a, a pride thing or like where, what might be stopping people from, from kind of intuitively doing these things? Yes. Well, in the academy, it's part, partly, t- in, in academic culture, it's partly time. Mm-hmm. You just you need to read fast really? and write there's, fast. There's a machine that needs to pump wow. out. Yeah. And then for any individual, also, there's a cost of being called naive, a naive mm. reader. If you're not, if you're just listening to the voice in the text, that's touching your humanity. So you, like, it, it'll look low and it also looks like, feminine. 
Does it sound at, like, could it be perceived as anti-intellectual? And yes, you'll get called anti-intellectual too. You, yes, you do. This, that's happening. So there's Me almost and many others writing in this <laughs> post-critical mode. Yeah. yeah. So there's almost this like elevation of almost like this Gnosticism that you can like separate your yourself from your body, and that if you're really, truly, really yes. smart, you can think with mm-hmm. just your brain and not yeah. your soul, because that's like just really low level, very like. Well, you so, mentioned that, like, it kind of that you might hear this in a derogatory way that you could be called feminine, as if that was yes. a derogatory thing. Yeah. So I'm picturing reading something I love, reading Marilyn Robinson or something. I've been reading her new book, um, okay. Jack, and I find with reading her novels that I sometimes lose the narrative because the writing is so beautiful. Because uh, I'm just, uh-huh. I just love the sentences so much, well, and so okay. I'll just, I'll literally say to myself, "This is so beautiful." Are Are you kind of saying, and I'm that that might be received differently from a woman saying that, that like, oh, or, this is so well, beautiful, then... Or that you could or that be nobody's labeled allowed as... To. Or that you could be labeled, labeled as feminine, feminine... for saying that. For okay. thinking yeah. that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, because... I, so a part of it is, let's say, somebody might... The, the, the thinking might go, in high school, kids learn to love poems. But in grade school and high school, the, the higher you go mm. at the, the education level, the more the teaching is done by men. So we're going to turn boys into men or turn girls and boys into men. And they're going to not just have the poem hold their hand because they don't need that anymore. They're already formed. Um, An example of this problem is uh, the reception among literary scholars, among people in my discipline of the poet Mary Oliver, who's very popular. Um, uh, There was a, a piece in the New Yorker uh, by a fellow English professor who's quite brilliant uh, about after the death of Mary Oliver. And he said, we, we actually turned away from trying to figure out what it is that makes her work so powerful. Uh, the favorite poem with the public of Mary Oliver is called Wild Geese. And I'll just, if there's time, yes. is there yes, time? Yes. Okay, I'll read you the last uh the last uh, lines of this poem. The striking thing about it is that if you look at the number of articles written, this is, the, this is one of the very, very most popular poets in America. She died a, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Oprah loves her. Literature, English professors love her. Mm-hmm. If you look at what happened on Facebook after she died, we were all posting her poems and wow. saying how, how much she had meant to us. But if you look at who's written scholarly articles on her, the number is minuscule, minuscule. It's almost zero, even though she's been so influential. And it's because she speaks as a heart to the heart of the reader. Mm. So that's okay. I think okay, that would make but you very good. <laughs> yes, but that's part of that, so to speak, Oprah feminine world. Uh. That's about self-help. It's as if to acknowledge that you need a hand to yeah. hold you is to acknowledge that you need a mom. And so you're hardly manly enough to be a published English professor. <laughs> so these are my favorite lines from Wild Geese, which are probably every fa- everybody's favorite lines. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Um, it's an incredible poem. I encourage readers, maybe put it up on the site yeah. also, this yeah. poem, so Wild Geese. Uh, and the, the, the poem builds up very beautifully to this culmination. Uh, but she's speaking to the reader, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, and we're all lonely. Everybody's lonely yeah. and scared. If you're reading a poem, it's in this kind of beautiful lyric voice, it's because something in you craves that human contact mm-hmm. that Rilke was talking about. Mm-hmm. But that's all gushy and touchy-feely. And so you show that you're a professional by showing that you don't need to be touched or to feel. So you're, you're disengaged. You kind of can take the thing apart. You have an authority yes. over mm-hmm. the text, whatever. Yeah. That. yeah, but once again, there's a big movement in my say, field to bring the, the touching and feeling right. back. 
That's super a, encouraging to me. <laughs> I notice as you okay. said, that's super encouraging. Yeah, yeah. It is. I, I notice yeah. as you read that that because we're obviously receptive, so and we trust you already. So that when you say, "Okay, I'm about to read this these lines from this poem," the three of us in the room, we kind of physically get ready to kind of receive yeah. this. One of the mm -hmm. things Richard Topping mentions in terms of failing to read charitably, he says, um, "Pay attention to your body when you read." Right, that yeah. there is something in this mm -hmm. openness mm -hmm. to to, to yeah. that we like appreciating beauty or heart to heart heart that can mm -hmm, speak to mm -hmm. heart right that there is a physical thing well, in this as well and and as he was talking about it it was also like pay attention to the things that like make you tense the things that make you angry like what are you reacting to and it's 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 talking about like understanding that you you're an embodied learner and when you're reacting mm. to things that really? there's, there's ah, that reasons fantastic there's reasons mm. that you're reacting to things well and i think of that and i think I go back again to kind of cultural scenes, scenes in our society right now of people hollering at one another. And I think, you know, it, it sounds it sounds too touchy feely to say even, right? But but I'm watching a scene of the other side, whatever that might mean. So for me that would be, you know, a bunch of people with Trump flags yelling somewhere, maybe outside of Walter Reed or whatever it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so for yeah. me in my Christian faith it would be kind of I would be thinking prayerfully in a sense, going, Dear God help me to see the beauty in, oh, yeah. in mm -hmm. those people right that there mm -hmm. is there because mm -hmm. the humanity is there unless yeah. unless i refuse to see it yeah and yeah and i think that you know you help us along i the other thing i was thinking of as i was reading some of your stuff was some um, desert fathers and mothers and of course m much yeah. of this has come to us as the sayings of mm -hmm. the desert fathers but mm -hmm. it's not only the fathers it's abbas and amas right so and uh one i can't remember his name um this was a a desert father in this case but he was asked, you know, to share his wisdom and something, 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 because they were always being asked for their wisdom and their insight. And his answer was, um, excuse me, I am an ignoramus. And, and you know, oh. which is, it's not just kind of appreciating what the other side has to say, that they have something to say. It's also appreciating that I don't often know what I'm, you know, yeah. I, I'm more ignorant yes. than I allow myself to Absolutely. To yeah. And that can be even speaking of in your little, the place where you live there that that is the hope that people can reach across those lines, realizing that, okay, I don't know everything. This yeah. other person who thinks differently than me right. might actually yeah. know more, even if they're not educated and formally mm -hmm. educated, right? Mm -hmm. So I had so, so from the Desert Fathers and Mothers, I had a couple quotes. One I'll read at the end, but this one. Um, one, a novice came and asked one of the Desert Fathers or Mothers, I don't know in this case, how to kind of grow spiritually, or in these words, become a monk, how to become an you know, spiritually advanced kind of thing. Uh, so tell me how to become a monk. And the answer was, if you want to find rest in this life and in the next, say at every turn, who am I? And judge no one. They were all pithy. Oh, kind of wow. Sayings like this, That's right? really the, great. Yeah, they're oh. always, they're always in terms of like the, the moral deficiency of the other, the desert fathers and mothers are always like, Whatever deficiency is on the other side, you have as much or more deficiency, yes. right? This is the thing. Yeah, that I love. yeah. And that's political discourse going forward. Um, it uh, this is th th there's some hope in that uh, with this, right? That mm -hmm. so anyway, I want maybe as we kind of move to close, one more quote from a desert father that has been in my mind, um, and then it, actually I was glad I wrote it down before. To speaking with you because it's been in my mind as we've been talking as well. Um, again, a novice has come to a desert father or mother and asked them like, what do I do? These people don't agree with me or there's these arguments. And so then there was this kind of moral instruction given, right? Um, and here was the answer. So what do I do in these cases? And, and I'm thinking of political discourse and whatever today. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do I do? And the answer is, if anyone speaks to you on a matter of controversy, do not argue with them. If they speak well, say, Yes. If they oh. speak ill, say, I am ignorant in the matter, but argue not with what they have said, and your mind will be at peace. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> so, Great. Yeah, it's, I mean, and these are people writing A well before uh, many of our kind of things have been established. So, mm -hmm. uh, Alison, you've... So, um, but thank you so much for joining us. We are thinking of you um, in the days ahead in your country. This will be put up... After. On... What November third is the election, right? 
Yeah, so, mm-hmm. so this is probably going sixth. up on the 6th or 7th or something like that. And so um, we'll be listening to this conversation in, in a different kind of context. But we're really grateful for what you're working on. I, we don't, do you know when some of the, wor- the, the book and stuff you're writing will be out, or is that not? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. I want to get it to uh, my editor okay. by the end of the fall. Oh, fantastic. Uh, oh, so not well, long. Though. Yes, yeah. I, that's what I want to do. But I write <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> slowly and painfully. Thoughtfully. That's the thing about the monk with the writings on the wall of his cell. Yeah, right. You know, that's, that's well put. That's, that's me. But, uh, but I, I hope uh, within the next year and a half. Oh, so fantastic. Well, we will track it down for sure. We'll put a link to um, the article of yours that we discussed. If there's anything else that you would like us to add, you can let us know. Um, and we'll put that up on the episode and thank you so much for joining us and for doing the work that you're doing Um, it's it's affecting even people like us yes that's fantastic Uh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you both thank you very much thank you thanks bye-bye